0: Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we're going to do a special trade episode on the Serge Ibaka trade that has shaken up the Eastern Conference playoff picture. So I'm back again with my guest from our first Raptors podcast, Jordan Kligman. Jordan, how are you doing? I didn't sleep last night. I still think I'm
1: in a dream. I'm so happy right now.
0: (laughs) Well, there's certainly a lot to be happy about in Toronto, as the Raptors have just completed a trade for Serge Ibaka. They sent back Terrence Ross and the lower of the two first round picks that the Raptors have in 2017, their own pick and the Clippers pick. So what do you think Ibaka's impact might be for the Raptors, especially for the rest of this season, but potentially going forward as well?
1: Well, it's massive. Like, the Raptors have known, the Raptors fans have known for several years they've needed a power forward. Patrick Patterson is good, but Patterson can't play 48 minutes. He's good, ideally, in that 20 to 25 minute role. So that's that's perfect for bringing in a stud like Sergi Baca to start uh, and play the lion's share of the minutes. And there's not going to be a significant drop off, uh, assuming Patterson's healthy and when he comes in off the bench.
0: So when I'm looking at this trade for the Raptors, there are a lot of obvious positives. I think the biggest one is that Ibaka is shooting better than ever from deep. He's shooting a career-high 38.8% from three. He's taking more attempts from deep than he ever has before. And that spacing will be really helpful for this Raptors offense, especially in the playoffs, but even down the stretch of the regular season. The thing that I'm worried about with Ibaka is that he has not been as good on defense this year as he has in the past. And really, it's the last two years where there's sort of been a drop off from Ibaka on the defensive end. So this year, his defensive real plus minus is 0.52, which is actually lower than Pascal Siakam, who's been starting... Most of the games the Raptors a power forward this season. Last year, he was at 0.86, but the year before, he was fifth among power forwards in the league at a little over three and a half. Ibaka is also allowing 58.5% on shots less than six feet away for the rim, which is slightly better than league average. But that's really misleading because league average includes point guards and shooting guards who aren't really supposed to be rim protectors. And even if you're looking at the more traditional numbers, Ibaka's block rate and total number of blocks are way down from what he's been at his peak. His defensive rating is actually worse than the Magic's defensive rating as a team so far this season. Ibaka's at 108.1. The Magic as a team are at 107.3. So I guess my biggest question for you is, do you think Ibaka can be more of a defensive force in Toronto when he isn't being relied upon to carry as much of the offense as he was in Orlando? Or do you think that drop-off is just sort of what we can expect from Ibaka at this point?
1: Well, he's definitely past his prime. Like, you can't say that, like, he's at his peak anymore. He's still a very good player, uh, and he's he's better than the alternatives the Raptors have besides Patterson. Like, Pascal Siakam, he's a rookie. He's not a viable option down the stretch heading into the playoffs. Um, you look at the Raptors, they're trying to play Bebe at power forward, trying to play Jakob Pertl at power forward. The problem with that is when the Raptors are trying to play two centers defense is really hard when it comes to switching and closing out on threes. And I think that's where Ibaka is going to shine. Like not only can he play inside, he can also play some perimeter defense and be much quicker on his feet.
0: I think the other thing to think about with the Ibaka trade is I think he's going to see a lot more time as a small center than he did in Orlando because the Orlando front court is incredibly crowded and the Toronto front court is less crowded. And speaking about the Toronto front court, let's talk quickly about how this trade is going to shake up that front court rotation. So. We talked a little bit about Patterson earlier and how you think he's probably going to continue to come off the bench. Hopefully he'll be able to come back soon from that knee contusion. But in terms of the rest of the Raptors front court, do you see Siakam just falling out of the rotation after this trade? Well, he
1: was barely in the rotation when everyone was healthy. He was starting in that kind of Luis Scola role to start the season, just because the Raptors really didn't have a lot of power forwards, but he, he fell out of the rotation when like everyone was healthy. Bebe was playing some power forward, so I think uh, Siakam's going to be out of the rotation. I think Jared Sullinger's going to be out of the rotation, and I think even Jakub Pertl could see his minutes get cut even slimmer.
0: So you think the front court rotation is basically going to be Balanchunas and Ibaka starting? Baby Noguera and Patrick Patterson coming off the bench, and then some sort of combination of spot minutes, if necessary, from Siakam, Selinger, and Pirtle.
1: Yeah, you did mention about Patterson and Ibaka playing together, and I, I do like that, but I, I don't know if you're playing them together, who are you rotating off the bench to to cover power forward when when someone needs a rest? Is just someone going to stay in like heavy minutes?
0: Well, so on that front, Do you think maybe Damari Carroll might get some minutes at four if you're going to do a small lineup with Ibaka at center? It's possible.
1: I think uh, Raptor fans have talked about Carroll playing power forward for a while now, and it it could work, but I think with Ross being gone, he's probably going to need to play the bulk of his minutes at small forward. People often complain, you know, Powell's too small to play small forward, so... It's kind of hard, like DeRozan has the length to play small forward, but he can't really guard many people. So it's not like the Raptors have another wing to really fit that small forward position. So I th- I think Carroll, it's going to be hard to play him at power forward when he's going to be needed to play small forward.
0: Yeah, that's fair enough. And maybe that will mean that Siakam doesn't fall out of the rotation entirely. I'm just assuming, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm assuming that he's going to be that fifth big just because he's been playing a lot more than Selinger and Purdle have so far this season. And also because... I think the addition of Ibaka means that it'll be a lot harder to solve the power forward minutes than the center minutes, just because Ibaka can sort of switch comfortably between the two, and both Valanchunas and Baby Noguera are a lot more comfortable at center than they are at power forward.
1: Yeah, I think Purtle might be ahead of Siakam in the depth chart. The Raptors have been relying on Purtle more lately. He was obviously the higher pick. And Pertle's looked good defensively. He can rebound, and the Raptors don't really need him to score that much. So, I don't know. It, it, Siakam, Pertle, either one, by the time the Raptors get to the playoffs, the rotations are going to be so tight that either one of them aren't really going to get many minutes at that point.
0: Yeah, and this trade definitely seems like it's more of a trade for the playoffs than a trade for the rest of the regular season, especially since Ibaka's contract expires at the end of the season, which we'll get into later talking about whether the Raptors are likely to sign him in this offseason. But let's move to talking about Terrence Ross and how his departure will affect the team. Ross started the season red hot from deep. He's gone on a little bit of a cold stretch recently that sort of coincided with the Raptors as a team having a bit of a cold stretch recently, but he's still shooting 37.5% from deep, and he's still a hyper-athlete. The thoughts about his potential might be a little bit optimistic, given that he's already 25, but... He's definitely going to get minutes in Orlando. So how do you think his loss will affect the Raptors' rotations going forward?
1: Well, I actually don't think his loss to the Raptors is going to be huge. He he kind of regressed to the mean after you mentioned that hot start. He's a good three-point specialist, but he doesn't really do that much else. In the playoffs over the years, he's made a lot of bonehead plays that have cost the Raptors in critical situations. So yeah, I'm okay with him doing well somewhere else. I think in another situation, he could be in a better opportunity to improve his game. And that's that's good for him. That'll be good for the Magic. Uh, the Raptors have Serge Ibaka and are in a better place.
0: I think it is worth noting just briefly, but at least worth noting that Ross has one of the better net ratings on the Raptors. He's fifth behind Kyle Lowry, Nagara Patterson, and technically Bruno Caboclo, but that doesn't really seem fair to count since he's played, like, <laughs> I think 15 minutes this entire season. But the team has played better with Ross on the floor than off the floor, and maybe that's a factor of the players that Ross is playing with rather than Ross's own impact. Do you think it's more that he just gets to play with those Lowry and Bench units that have been destroying teams on both ends, or do you think maybe there's something else in that as well?
1: Well, I think some of it has to do with Powell, who's been inconsistent. I think kind of because Casey's been just messing with, with Powell's minutes all season, like single-digit minutes, and then when, it, when DeRozan was out, he was getting like 35 minutes, switching back to single digits. Like, how can like Powell... Be expected to play well when he doesn't have a defined role, and I think now he'll have that defined role with Ross gone, getting you know probably twenty five minutes a game, and I think he'll excel in that role. And I don't, I don't think there's going to be a major drop off from Ross.
0: Yeah, that is another benefit of this trade for the Raptors is they really get to see what they have in Pal. And he is a little younger than Ross. He is only in his second year. So he has a lot more room to grow than Ross probably does at this point. And he's shown a lot in flashes. So I guess my question then is, do you think his inconsistencies this year have come mostly from Casey giving him very inconsistent minutes? Or do you think there might be something else there?
1: Well, I think there's that, and then some growing pains. Like he he was very good uh, last year after the All Star break when he was getting I think it was around like twenty three minutes a game when like Carroll was hurt and he was sh- he was shooting from three at a ridiculous clip I think close to forty percent then. I think that was probably hard for him to maintain coming into the season, but I think it's largely due to, like, he doesn't know he's going to be playing five minutes one game and then, like, 30 minutes the next. How can a player prepare for that? That, That's crazy. I don't know any player in the league that can be successful not having a defined role.
0: So the other guards in the Toronto rotation that might be affected by this, Corey Joseph, maybe DeLon Wright, and Fred VanVleet off the bench, Do you think Kojo might get more minutes alongside Lowry as a two with Ross gone? Do you think this affects DeLon Wright and Fred VanVleet at all? Or do you think they're just too far down the rotation for this shakeup to really matter?
1: Well, DeLon Wright has been healthy, what, like, I think two and a half weeks now, and he's not playing? I don't know what the deal is there. So at some point, the Raptors are going to have to give him some minutes, but he would get them at like point guard, maybe like five minutes a night at some point, especially when the Raptors want to rest Lowry down the stretch. As for Corey Joseph, yeah, I think he'll get some some minutes, some more minutes at shooting guard. Uh, A lot of people pointed out that Joseph has struggled this year, particularly defensively, and that's true, but I think a lot lot of people are overrating what Joseph is and what, what he did last year. You know, he's a decent bench player.
0: All right, let's move on from the impact of the Ibaka trade, at least briefly, and take a look at the overview of the Raptors' season as a whole. So, last time we talked about the Raptors, they'd played 10 games, so... I think the question that I want to start with is a debate between Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan. So DeMar DeRozan got the starting nod for the Eastern Conference at guard. But I think Lowry has been a better player this season. So I'd love to hear sort of what your thoughts are on the differences between the two of them.
1: I think DeRozan has taken a massive leap this season. Like the start of the season, he was having these monster scoring nights. And he hasn't dipped that much since then. I, I thought he, he'd fall off considerably, but he's still having some big scoring nights. But I, I do think Lowry is a better player and way more important to this team. Just what he brings, passing the ball, and being able to score from anywhere. Whereas DeRozan likes to have the ball in his hands a lot. And it it, de- it depends whether his shots are going in. And and also, you know, Lowry is a much better defender than DeRozan.
0: Yeah, I think that's the big point for me is that DeRozan is below average defensively at best. He can be pretty terrible at times on that end, whereas Lowry is still one of the better point guard defenders in the league. I also think there's something to be said for the fact that the bench lineups with Lowry in have been incredible this season and the lineups with DeRozan and No Lowry have been, last I checked, basically about even. So I guess I objected to DeMar starting in the All-Star game over Kyle Lowry, and I don't want to detract from DeRozan at all, who's been putting up a career high in true shooting percentage while also averaging 28 points a game, which certainly is nothing to sneeze at, but... I definitely agree with you. I think Lowry does more for the team on the defensive end, and also with his passing and ability to run the offense. And speaking of running the offense, for a long stretch of this season, the Raptors actually had the best offensive rating in the league, better than the Rockets, better than the Warriors. So what were your thoughts on that early season run of just incredible scoring from the Raptors.
1: It wasn't sustainable. Like, you have this ISO ball where it's just one or two guys holds the ball and, you know, puts up the shot. They they were making, like DeRozan and Lowry were, were making all of them then. Now, uh, I think they're still shooting pretty well, but I think defenses are zeroing in on them and putting the pressure on them to get the ball out of their hands, and they're not passing out when they should be, when they should be kicking it to Valanciunas down low, who's probably the most efficient scorer on the team.
0: Yeah, I thought it was incredibly interesting that the Raptors have been as good on the offensive end as they have been while ranking 29th in the league in assists at the moment. I think that's pretty incredible in and of itself. But the other thing to note is the offense has gone down, but it's not like it's gone down that much. They're still third in the league. In offensive rating at 114 per basketball reference, which is quite incredible. But it is interesting to note, as you said, that they have sort of been playing better teams during the most recent stretch. That sort of hurt their offensive output a little bit. And I think something else to note is that Bebe Noguera, after shooting in the 70s for much of the early portion of the season, he's down a little bit to 68% from the floor. But especially early in the season, he would just finish every time the ball got into his hands. And I think his screening and lob potential really helped generate a little bit more space for the Raptors around their two main scorers in Larry and DeRozan. So what are your thoughts on Noguera and how he's sort of impacted this Toronto offense?
1: Well, I think it's interesting, you mentioned how he was shooting at like that 70% clip to start the season, now it's dipped a little bit. He's taking more jumpers now, I don't know if he really has the range. He's made, I think, three three-pointers this season, which really gets the fans going every time he hits one of those. But I think Bebe has been good defensively, and he he's good at blocking shots that he learned from Biombo last year. But I think the biggest problem with Bebe is his rebounding. I think he's re- he's, he's only at like 4.9 rebounds per game. He's a 7-footer, so you figure he'd be a little bit better than that. But watching him play, it's like he doesn't know how to position some of the times when going for that defensive rebound. He's also very thin, so maybe he's afraid to get pushed around. I don't know, but he's been really good for the the Raptors and it's a pleasant surprise. But I think some people were thinking that he's better suited with the Raptors than Jonas Valanciunas, and I think that's just ridiculous because the Raptors desperately need that rebounding from Valanciunas. And Valanciunas is just a way better scorer if the Raptors would drop some touches for him. And they have been more lately. Casey has been going to him a little bit more.
0: So we start out by talking about the Raptors' early run of hot offense. They beat the Brooklyn Nets on January 17th to go to 28 and 13. They have since gone 4 and 10. The offense has declined a little bit, but still they're third in the league on the season. Their defense has really fallen off since then. So you sort of talked earlier about how it seemed like regression to the mean a bit for Toronto in that they weren't playing as incredibly well recently. But what do you think has been the biggest factor in this recent slump from the Raptors?
1: Well, just taking the last game against the Pistons, the Raptors were struggling to close out on threes. The Pistons were just kept bricking them until the critical shot the end of the game, the game winner, I think Pope, hit the three to put them up one. And that's been an issue for the Raptors. When when you play a team that can shoot threes and don't have guys that can cl- close out uh, when there's switches, I think that was a big impact on the slump. And I think Serge Ibaka is going to come in, and he's going to know how to get out to the perimeter and contest shots.
0: Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that Pistons game later in the podcast. But I think that seems quite reasonable that they're having trouble defending three-point shots because, again, a lot of their recent struggles have been on the defensive end more than on the offensive end. I think the other thing worth noting is that DeMar DeRozan was also missing for a decent stretch of those games. So they went 3 and 4 without DeMar in the lineup, which is surprisingly enough actually better than they've played overall in the last 14 games. But what did the Raptors look like without DeRozan on the floor but did did the offense just crater with DeRozan not in the lineup? I noticed in some of the
1: games it really felt like the Raptors were missing DeRozan. Powell had some big games in there but when he wasn't you you felt the absence of DeMar DeRozan. He is needed on this team and maybe it's not having the ball in his hands all the time but he is very important to the Raptors' success And I think the team just needs to get their confidence back.
0: Yeah, even if the Raptors do have some great offensive players overall, which is part of that third-ranked offense, DeRozan is tied for fourth in the league in scoring, and not having him on the floor just allows the defense to give just that little bit more of focus to everybody else on the team and make it harder for all of them to score.
1: I think people... They they don't like watching Derozan play hero ball, but then when the shots are going in, you know they get quiet. So I think I think the there has to be a balance that it shouldn't be oh yeah he needs to stop holding ball all the time to yeah he he still needs like his nice amount of touches, but the Raptors need to shift the the ball around and diversify the offense.
0: Yeah, it also helps that Derozan draws a lot of fouls and. Getting the opposing team in foul trouble isn't just helpful for guys like DeRozan who draw a lot of fouls, but for the team as a whole, it makes defenses have to lay off of guys a little bit because, you know, they don't want to get a non-shooting foul and send guys to the line unnecessarily. It makes it a lot easier for the Raptors to drive, which when you have Lowry and DeRozan on your team, those are two guys that are really good at driving to the rim. And not having DeRozan out there really hurts with that. Let's move on to talking about the best and worst games for the Raptors this season. So I wanted to start with, I think, the first game that most people will think of in terms of best games for the Raptors this year. They beat the Atlanta Hawks on December 3rd, 128 to 84. And I mean, that sort of says it all right there. A fantastic performance on both ends for the Raptors. What were your thoughts on that game?
1: Well, I think that was the the game with no Paul Millsap, if I'm correct. But yeah, the Raptors looked great for that stretch, beating up on teams, missing key guys. It, it looked great, and it, I think a lot of people overrated where the Raptors were because, you know, they were beating up on teams, uh, missing key players. And now, I think, during the slump, some people are underrating what the Raptors are, and it's it's somewhere in the middle, and I, I think it's closer to the positive.
0: So, Millsap being out definitely was a big factor for the Hawks, and that shouldn't be overlooked. But the most impressive part of this game, I think, actually came in garbage time, where Millsap probably would have been playing anyway, the Raptors had a double-digit lead going into the fourth quarter. They were up by 16. And then in the fourth quarter, they outscored the Hawks 42 to 14. <laughs> and just looking at some of the shooting percentages for the guys off the bench, Baby Noguera, 5 for 5 from the floor. Patrick Patterson, 6 for 8 from the floor, 4 of 5 on threes. Terrence Ross, 6 of 8 from the floor, 3 of 4 on threes. Fred Van Vliet hit both of his shots. Norman Powell went two for three. And Kyle Lowry also played great in this game, but particularly well with the bench unit. And I think that was one of the surprises of the early part of the season is just how well those units with Kyle Lowry and the bench guys were playing. And I think this game more than any other really showed that. Yeah, and I
1: think they were also playing pretty good defense because I think the Hawks were shooting under 40% for the game. So it's not only were they red hot, they were also defending. So... When you're playing at your peak on both ends, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna get a good
0: result. Yeah, the Hawks shot 39.8% from the floor. So just a little bit under 40, but still under 40. They also shot 25% on three pointers and on a decent number of attempts. They went seven for 28. I think this game was really huge for the Raptors. Even though the Hawks didn't have Millsap, they still had Dwight Howard. This was before the Kyle Korver trade. Still had Dennis Schroeder and the Hawks really couldn't score. And I think a lot of credit has to go to the Raptors defense in addition to that offense off the bench. The other game I wanted to talk about was their November 23rd win against the Rockets in Houston. And this game, the Rockets did have everyone. This was after Patrick Beverly had returned from injury. He played 35 minutes and was one of the better players for Houston in this game. But the Raptors still won by double digits in Houston. And I think that game was a really impressive showing for Toronto as well.
1: Absolutely. You know, going into the game, I think I joked about betting on the Rockets. I'm just like, yeah, I don't see how how the Raptors are going to win this. But they showed up. And as you mentioned, the, the Rockets had all their guys. And, you know, James Harden, got his. He had 29 points, I believe, with 15 assists, but their supporting cast on the the Rockets wasn't good enough to hang with the Raptors.
0: Damari Carroll also had what is probably his best game of the season. He scored 20 points, shot 9 of 14 from the floor, 2 of 5 from deep. He also had four steals and three blocks against only one foul. And the Rockets' small forwards... Trevor Ariza went four for 11 for the field, three of nine from deep. And off the bench, Sam Decker went one of five for the field. So that's the kind of game that I think the Raptors expected from Carroll at his peak, but he just hasn't really been there that much this season. But if they can get that kind of game from Carroll... In the playoffs, maybe even once or twice, that would be really huge for them.
1: Yeah, well, Carroll varies so much game to game. Some games, he just looks useless. Other games, he looks great. And as you mentioned earlier, the Raptors' assists is near the bottom of the league. But in this game, DeMar Rosen had nine assists. Kyle Lowry had nine assists. The Raptors were moving the ball well. And when Carroll had success with the Hawks, they were one of the best passing teams in the league. So... It's not all on Damari De- Carroll when he's struggling. The Raptors need to move the ball well and get him the ball in good spots.
0: Yeah, another big factor in this game, even though Valanciunas turned it over five times, the Raptors as a team turned it over 14 times. The Rockets turned it over 26 times. Hard to turn the ball over 12 times in this game. Like, Harden almost matched the Raptors' turnover output by himself. And if you look at the final score, you know, a 13-point margin, you can pretty closely tie that to that plus-12 turnover differential for the Raptors.
1: Yeah, and if if you've watched Harden this season, his turnovers have been high throughout the season. Not not this high, obviously. But, you know, I'm always rooting for that quadruple-double for him with the turnovers. I think it's just a hilarious thing.
0: I think Harden and Russell Westbrook are going to be fighting for the rest of this year over who gets that first. But we talked about some of the best games for the Raptors this season, and it would be fair to not also talk about some of their worst games from this season. And one game that particularly stood out to me, on January 20th, the Raptors went to Charlotte to play the Hornets. And they lost 113 to 78. So just as we were talking about with the Hawks game, where the Raptors put up a great offensive performance in addition to a great defensive performance, the Raptors scored 30 points in the entire second half of this game. And Charlotte scored 33 points in just the third quarter. And especially if you're gonna be probably one of the three best teams in the Eastern Conference and the Hornets have now fallen out of the playoff picture, those are the kind of games that you really want back, especially as the Raptors start going into the stretch run for the playoffs.
1: Was Patterson in that game? I don't I don't think he
0: was. Patterson was out in that game, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think that was one of one of the major issues that you know, he had Damari Carroll starting at power forward. And you had Siakam playing 18 plus minutes, Sullinger playing 17, where he really couldn't fit with Valanciunas playing together.
0: Yeah, and we talked about how the Raptors were able to pass the ball really well in their win against the Rockets. In this game, they had 10 assists total, and additionally, they shot... 33.7% from the field, and 7 of 30 on three-pointers. I mean, they just couldn't buy a basket in this game.
1: Yeah, it's not good. And on the flip side, you know, the Hornets were operating in all cylinders, Kemba Walker was going off, and the Raptors couldn't do anything to stop him. It was like, he, I think even in like transition, he would roll out for a three and just smoke the Raptors. And then you know Frank Kaminsky got buckets as well, and i I think he he shot well in the game and If you look over the season i don't I don't think Kaminsky's shooting that well, so to allow Kaminsky to shoot well, I think hurt them as well,
0: yeah, I think this game was also particularly troubling because. This was sort of at the beginning of that downward turn that I talked about earlier. They lost two days before to the Sixers, who at the time were red hot. But after this game, things just kept sort of spiraling for the Raptors, and they lost the next three games, and that sort of kicked off this slump. And I think this game might have had a big impact on just the course of the most recent stretch of the Raptors season.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think they even struggled with the Nets in there, which was surprising. They had to fight it out, I think, to win.
0: That was the game before the 4-10 stretch. Ended up winning by double digits, but that game was a lot closer than double digits for most of the time. The other game, actually the Raptors' last game against the Pistons, where coming into the fourth quarter, they had a 16-point lead. And then they allowed the Pistons to score 36 in the fourth quarter, and they scored 19 themselves. And they allowed a game-winning three from Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who had gone one for 11 from deep prior to that shot. And they just sort of blew the lead away in that fourth quarter, despite actually another surprisingly solid game from Damari Carroll.
1: Yeah, I I think... This game was really surprising. The Raptors weren't closing out or defending threes, and the Pistons kept missing. Also, the Pistons' stars were just bad in this game. Like Reggie Jackson, I think he shot like one of five. Uh, Andre Drummond, who you usually think of as a, a high field goal percentage shooter, I think he was three of ten. So it was, it was the Pistons' bench that just feasted on the Raptors.
0: Yeah, here's a look at some of the bench guys for the Pistons in this game. Tobias Harris, 9 of 13 from the floor, 2 of 4 from deep, 24 points, 6 rebounds. Ish Smith, 6 of 10 from the floor, 15 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists. Aaron Baines only shot once, but made it. He added 7 rebounds as well. And yeah, I mean, Drummond on the one hand did not have a great shooting performance, as he mentioned. He did have 18 rebounds, including eight offensive rebounds, which really helped them. But Reggie Jackson, barely played in this game, was one for five. John Lewer was also one for five. Marcus Morris, three of nine. Caldwell Pope did hit the big shot at the end of the game, but he still only shot eight for 22 overall. And I mean, the interesting part is that the Raptors were actually pretty effective On the offensive end, I mean, they shot a little over 50%. They only turned the ball over nine times. But despite the final score being 102 to 101, despite both teams putting up 100 points, this was a kind of slow game. And the Pistons, I think part of their final margin was those offensive rebounds from Drummond and Baines also had three offensive rebounds off the bench. They only shot 43% overall. But they took almost twice as many threes as the Raptors did. Funnily enough, actually hit the same amount. Both teams hit eight threes. But they took nine more shots than the Raptors did. And even if you're less efficient, if you get more opportunities, you're going to have a chance of outscoring the other team.
1: Yeah, I think if you look at that, that fourth quarter collapse, the Pistons scored 36 and the Raptors only scored 19. I think if you just look at that part of the game, it's how this slump has been going. That the Raptors, you know, just don't show much confidence to really, you know, trust DeRozan and Lowry just holding the ball in so many offensive possessions. Not trusting other guys with the ball and... It's troubling because you know you, you blow a sixteen point lead like that, and then even after the game, Lowry seemed really upset, and he he was saying that something something needed to change. I don't know if that ended up putting pressure on the Raptors to go out and get Ibaka, and if it is, it was worth. I'm sorry that loss. I'm fine with it if it's what ended up getting us Ibaka.
0: Let's circle back to that Ibaka trade, which obviously has very much changed the fortunes of this Raptors franchise. So I wanted to close out the podcast by sort of taking a look at the future outlook from this Raptors trade. So the Raptors are currently tied for fourth in Eastern Conference, and they're four games back of the number two seed Celtics with 27 games to go. But this Ibaka trade is definitely going to put them on an upward swing. So I guess my question for you is, do you think the Raptors can climb back into the two seed, given that the Celtics have been playing pretty well as of late, and that there's a decent size gap with not that much of the regular season left.
1: I think the Raptors can climb up to that two seed. You saw how they started the season really hot, and there was actually I think there was a big separation for a while between the Raptors and other teams. So I think it's it's very possible if they get back up there. And I think not only will the Raptors be competitive with Boston with Atlanta with Washington. I think they're going to be competitive with Cleveland. Kevin Love is I think now out 6 weeks, and if that turns into, you know, more time, Cleveland could be in trouble. So, I think that opens the door for the Raptors.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Cleveland in a little bit, but just quickly first going back to that chase for the second seed. Both Boston and Washington Washington currently being the three seed, they've both gone nine and one in their last 10 games. And so I think the issue on my end with putting the Raptors as the presumptive two seed is that both of those teams above them are red hot. And if they keep up that kind of pace, the Raptors might have to win out pretty much the rest of the season to be able to pass them. But I guess the important question isn't really whether the Raptors make it to the two seed but how they match up against the Cavs in the playoffs because that's really I think the biggest impetus of this move by far is just to get over the hump against the Cavs the Raptors did manage to make it to Eastern Conference Finals last year they just didn't have enough to beat the Cavs so the question is how much of a difference do you think Ibaka makes against the Cavs? You sort of talked about this a little bit earlier, but I want to go more into depth on it.
1: I think it's huge because uh if Kevin Love's healthy, we have somebody that can defend him. Before Patrick Patterson w- would be, you know, heavily relied upon and like I mentioned earlier, I think he's Patterson's best use in that 20 to 25 minute role. So I think having Ibaka I think definitely it's going to help against Love. And even if Love isn't healthy, Channing Fry has killed the Raptors in the past. So, Abaka would be covering him. And that would be uh, important as well. I think if you look at the Cavs roster... I think they're less than the sum of their parts, whereas I think the Raptors are probably greater than the sum of their parts. LeBron is a great two-way player, but other than him, you know, Kyrie Irving's a great offensive player, but he's he's not a good defender. Kevin Love is is a good offensive player, he's not a good defender. They don't have these crazy two-way players that could you know shut down both Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan. So I, I think that that's very key.
0: So what chance do you think the Raptors have of beating the Cavs in the playoffs? I'll start out. I think they have about a 25% chance after this trade. I just don't think the Raptors have anyone who can handle LeBron at all. I think that's what Demar Carroll was brought into Toronto for. I don't think he's really lived up to that either last season or this season. I don't think he's lived up to the potential of being able to guard LeBron and I think this definitely vaults the Raptors' chances upward. I certainly wouldn't have had them add a 25% chance before this trade. But I don't think it solves their LeBron problem. And I don't think they really have the pieces to find a LeBron stopper over the course of the next week and a half or so until the trade deadline.
1: Well, if you would have asked me like two weeks ago, I think I would have said if the Raptors added a buck, I think I would have given us a 30% chance. But now I'm buying it. I I think the Raptors can beat the Cavs. I just like how the Raptors match up. As I mentioned, you know, uh, LeBron could probably, you know, slow down DeMar DeRozan. uh, But if he's doing that, the Cavs don't really have anyone to stop Kyle Lowry. And where the Raptors struggled in the playoffs last year uh, was against two shutdown defenders against a not very talented Pacers team in George Hill and Paul George. They just completely shut down Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan for much of that series. And the Raptors were, were lucky to pull that one out because of that. But I think looking matchup-wise, I think the Raptors match up well with Cleveland. Cleveland does have more talent, but I think the Raptors can do it.
0: I think the other thing that this Ibaka trade does is it really puts a lot of pressure on Danny Ainge to try and come up with a trade that doesn't really sacrifice the long-term future because I think this trade definitively puts the Raptors ahead of Boston in the race to dethrone Cleveland. So one last thing before we wrap up here. Do you think the Raptors are going to re-sign Ibaka? There have been questions about whether Ibaka is going to be looking for a max Adrian Wojnarowski reported shortly after the trade that Masai Ujiri was really hoping to try and re-sign Ibaka in the offseason. So it's really early days, obviously. We're recording this literally the day of the trade. But what are your thoughts on potentially keeping Ibaka in Toronto beyond this season, especially with Kyle Lowry sent to hit free agency?
1: I don't think it's cut and dry right now. I've been having this debate with people on Twitter for for a, about a month now, whether it be the Raptors getting Ibaka or Millsap, I think if Ibaka makes the Raptors dramatically better, they gotta resign him. But if he doesn't, how how can you tie up all that cap space? You can't double down on that. Like you, you're just killing your future if, if the team doesn't get better. I think the team will definitely get better, but you never know with, with chemistry. Like you mentioned, you know Patrick Patterson. When the Raptors acquired him, it really changed changed the outlook of the team and chemistry was formed. So you n- you never know with trades, but I think if the Raptors get dramatically better, and I think they will, I think they will definitely try and re-sign Ibaka. And I think it will mean that the Raptors will need to get rid of salary in the offseason.
0: Yeah, the price point that Ibaka's willing to sign at will definitely be a big factor in whether or not they look to bring him back. But I think at the end of the day, and judging by what you said so far, I think you'd probably agree, that even if Ibaka is just a rental for the rest of this season, they really didn't give up that much to get him. I mean, those first round picks are both going to be late in the first round, you know, not as valuable, certainly, as the pick that Orlando gave up to get Ibaka.
1: I'm glad you mentioned those picks, because the, Ra- the Raptors still have one of those first round picks left. You know, if if they need to replace Terrence Ross, and that shows, you know, in the, in the next week, they can use that pick and go out and get a wing if they want to, you know, make a push for the postseason.
0: All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up?
1: I'm just really excited. I'm I'm assuming Abaka won't play tonight. The trade has to be processed and physicals and whatnot. So I think the Raptors play tomorrow as well. So I, I'd hope to see him in that game.
0: Should be a fun one. That about wraps things up for us. You can follow Jordan on Twitter at 416basketball. He will also have an article up soon on the hashtag basketball website related to some of the future Outlook stuff that we discussed towards the end of the pod. So definitely check that out later this week. As soon as it goes up, you can follow me on Twitter at NBA underscore Johnson. Please leave a rating or review if you're enjoying the podcast. Also, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter with any feedback you might have. And thanks so much for listening.